are listening to Living for the Cinema with Jeff Gershon. I am a cinema enthusiast of all genres, here to discuss with you one film every episode. The good, the bad, and the ugly of what makes each film unique. And just as a warning, these films might be in theaters now, or they may be from 10, 20, 30 years ago. But regardless, there's a strong possibility that I will be revealing spoilers. I might give away the plot or the ending in this review, so just be warned. The movie is Green Card, which came out in 1990 and was directed by Peter Weir. From Peter Weir, the director of Dead Poet Society, comes an unusual love story about two very different people. He's French. Nice to meet you. Who entered into a marriage of convenience. For the green card, I'd do anything. Then by the power vested in me, I now pronounce you man and wife. <gasps> they thought they'd never have to see each other again. Good luck with your life. And good luck with your composing. Until... I'm with the investigation department of the INS. The what? The Immigration Service. The government changed their plans. <laughs> Touchstone Pictures presents France's most acclaimed actor, Gerard Depardieu, and America's newest film sensation, Andy McDowell, in the story of two people who got married, met, and then fell in love. Card. It stars Annie McDowell, Gerard Depardieu, Bibi Newworth, Greg Edelman, Ethan Phillips, and Lois Smith. The genre would be romantic comedy. Now, just last Valentine's Day, my wife picked some nondescript J-Lo rom-com from a few years ago for us to watch, and it was fine. So then this was my choice as a follow-up, and it being the superior choice, she quite enjoyed it as well. Peter Weir directed this, bringing his own laid-back Australian style to a 90s rom-com, and it's very charming. Post-Sex, Lies, and Videotape, which she was just fantastic in, Andy McDowell co-starred in her share of romantic comedies. But this was really the only one that I actually found her engaging in. McDowell's always had a more stolid, colder demeanor, and it felt like placing her in a cheery romantic interest role just never really played to her strengths as an actress. Fortunately, her seriousness works perfectly in this movie, against Gerard Depardieu's unwieldy, oafish charm in what I believe was his first English-language role. They have nice chemistry together, which isn't obvious at first, but builds nicely as the story progresses. Look, truce, okay? I don't make it a war. You asked me before why I did it. The marriage. Well, it was for the greenhouse. Greenhouse? I don't expect you to understand, but that's why I did it. Oh, I understand. You want something? You take it. Hmm? Now, the story itself feels like it's right out of rom-com trope 101. Two strangers, Bronte, played by McDowell, and George, played by DePadieu, pretending to be married so that he can get his green card and so she can get her dream apartment with a greenhouse. Weir, who also wrote this, gives it such a lived-in, getting-to-know-you vibe that it just feels fresher than your typical rom-com. Are you composing something now? Composing? Well, you're always humming that little tune. Me hum? I don't hum. Yes, you do, all the time. If it bothers you, uh, I'll stop. No, I like it. Oh, funny, it's the first thing you like about me. 
I don't dislike you, George. I have no opinion of you. I just want it over and my life to continue as it was before. And I am waiting for my life to begin. We get to know both Bronte and George as they study up on each other to fool the INS. And this all unfolds in such a clever and organic way to develop a romance that the relationship never really feels forced. It all leads to a touching conclusion, which is not exactly what you would expect, but still quite romantic nonetheless. Now, this is certainly not Weir's best film. That might be Witness or Master and Commander. But it's one of the more underappreciated romantic comedies of the 1990s. I remember it being hyped as the next Pretty Woman at the time of release, but this was actually far better in retrospect. And that brings me to the categories. The first category would be Best Needle Drop. This is the best song cue or piece of score used throughout the runtime of the film. My man Hans Zimmer does a nice understated score for this film, very much in line with similar low-key synth-based dramatic scores they did for acclaimed films around this time for Driving Miss Daisy and Rain Man. It's a good score, but it doesn't provide the musical highlight for this particular movie. No, that would be the best-selling Irish solo artist of all time. She pioneered modern Celtic and New Age music and was even nicknamed the Queen of New Age. You've heard her music in many a waiting room. You know her. You love her. Who else could it be but Enya? That's right. For much of the 90s, you just could not avoid the soothing sounds of Miss Enya Patricia Brennan. That's her full name. And believe it or not, her music being so prominently featured in Green Card in this movie was one of the jumping off points for that notoriety. The song is called Storms in Africa, and it was recorded for her second album, Watermark, from 1988. That was her breakout album. It's a gorgeous, lilting melody, fast-paced but soothing, featuring lovely choral vocals amidst notes that you'd hear from a tubular bell and light drums, but all done through synthesizers. And we hear Storms in Africa play during a key sequence late in the movie. Now, we've all seen the common trope used during the climaxes of many a rom-com where we watch one of our protagonists literally run to catch the object of their affection before time runs out on something. It's always something different. Probably the best use of this was the finale of When Harry Met Sally, when we saw Billy Crystal's Harry running through the streets of Manhattan to catch Meg Ryan's Sally at a New Year's Eve party. Well, Green Card subverts that trope a little bit, as we see both of our protagonists running together through Central Park. They're running late for their climactic interviews with the INS to determine whether they qualify for the titular green card. We see them running through the forest in their formal wear, and it all looks realistically awkward as they're tripping on rocks and maneuvering through trees until it even seems, dare I say, romantic as George holds out his hand while they're running and Bronte grabs it, just as we hear one of those tubular bells. It's just a great visual moment paired with great music. Right. Come on, come on. Ah! Don't fall. 
And that brings us to the next category, which would be the trailer moment. This is the scene or moment that best describes this movie. One highlight of Green Card features a pretty inspired gesture on George's part at a dinner party when he plays the piano for the host who believes that he's a famous composer. It all begins as funny piano-playing hijinks, but shifts into a genuinely touching moment between these two characters. And it's not punctuated with bombastic music to tell the audience just how, quote, important this moment is. Weir just lets it play out more naturally and quietly to have the desired effect. Isn't that Mozart? I know. Translate for me, madame. What else? Une fois, j'ai entendu le bruit du vent dans les arbres. Once I heard the sound of the wind in the trees. I think that's it. Une fois, j'ai entendu le bruit du rire des enfants. Once I heard the sound of the laughter of children. J'ai pleuré à chaud de larmes pour ces arbres. And I wept warm, salted tears for the lost trees. That brings me to the next category, which would be wasted talent. This is the most underutilized talent involved with the film. Bibi Newworth was an actress on the come up in movies during the early 90s. By this point, she had done a lot of stage work and had recently just had a breakout role as Lilith, the uptight therapist and former wife to Fraser Crane on the very popular sitcom Cheers and its very popular spin-off, Frasier. In Green Card, she plays a chic Manhattanite friend of McDowell's Bronte, and she provides some nice supporting comedy for the story, including that trailer moment, which I just referenced before, where her facial reactions to George's piano playing are pretty priceless. Now, she's not really wasted in this movie, as she's playing the reliable character trope of one of our protagonist's friends, and she plays it well. Newworth has been a supporting character in just about every other film I've seen her in since then. So here's my issue. She's a funny, attractive actress with definite screen presence. Why wasn't she ever given the lead role in films like this? Usually reserved for stars like Sandra Bullock or Julia Roberts. B.B. Newworth could have just killed it as a romantic lead. This is more than just a case of wasted talent. It's just likely years of wasted opportunities for a gifted actress. You're together? Sort of. This is an old friend, George Foray. This is Lauren Adler. Hi, Lauren. Ooh, that accent, you're French, right? Oui. Oui? Oh, exactement. This is so weird. Everything in my life has been French lately. Monday, I buy a jacket. It's French. Wednesday, I go see a French movie. And then last night, Tony says, let's eat French. <laughs> it's like Carl Jung. What do you call it? Uh, coincidence something? Coincidence, exactement. <laughs> <laughs> so, nice to meet you, Bronte's French friend. And that brings me to the final category. That would be the MVP, the person or people who are most responsible for the success of this film. Peter Weir directs this with a deft touch, as only he can. And Depardieu does what he was clearly hired to do in his first English-speaking role. He creates an engaging character who we root for, despite his rough edges. But at the end of the day, this is Andy McDowell's movie as Bronte. She has the much trickier role as the colder person who at the beginning of the story is only interested in plants. 
we watch her not only warm up to Depardieu's George, but also just to the general idea of allowing herself to connect with another human being. It's a genuinely subtle and effective performance, leading up to a surprisingly emotional moment with her character at the end, which feels completely earned. It's very much akin to the kind of character arc we saw with Tom Cruise playing Charlie Babbitt in Rain Man just a couple of years prior, watching him gradually warming towards his brother and learning to care about him, but in subtle increments. Yeah, this is that good of a performance. And it's a nice follow-up to McDowell's revelatory performance the year prior in Sex, Lives, and Videotape. Unfortunately, Hollywood never really figured out how to best utilize McDowell's unique traits after this movie. For much of the 90s, she was just pretty much shoehorned into underdeveloped romantic co-leads in movies like Four Weddings and a Funeral, Michael, or Groundhog Day. The latter of which is still a great movie, don't get me wrong. It's just that her romantic subplot with Bill Murray's character is the weakest part. Regardless, in Green Card, she just knocks this role out of the park, and she elevates the material. For that reason, Andy McDowell is the MVP. He hums all the time. Hums? He's composing. He hasn't written in a long time. He says he's not sensitive. But that's not true. He's a very sensitive man. <laughs> he makes me laugh. She's very kind to people. Me, I don't think that way. I don't trust people. <laughs> He's had a hard life. In a way, he hasn't learned to give. But he's got so much to give. My rating for Green Card would be four stars out of five. <laughs> Green Card is certainly quieter than your typical rom-com, but no less affecting. If you haven't already then by all means watch it with that special someone. If you're looking to watch Green Card, it's available to rent or buy on all streaming platforms. And that ends another naturalized review. Please like, subscribe, and share the Living for the Cinema podcast and follow and like us on Facebook, Instagram, and Letterboxd. And join us next time for another review from Living for the Cinema. Living for the Cinema.